This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi there. Can I help you with anything? Uh, yeah, I'm looking for a book called The Public School Murder. You and everyone else. Let me see if we have any copies left. It's funny. Hardly anyone checked it out until the news of Elliot Spears' murder hit the papers. And now everyone and their uncle wants to read the book the murder was based on. Yep. As I suspected, all copies are clean checked out. Darn. Do you know of anywhere else I could get my hands on it? I want to know how it ends. I'm afraid you'll be hard-pressed to find a copy in this town at the moment. Look, I'll save you some time. At the end of the book, everyone knows who the murderer is, but he never gets caught. He gets away with his crime. Next person in line, can I help you? This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our second episode on Elliot Spear, the headmaster of the Mount Hermon School for Boys in Massachusetts, who was shot one night through the window of his study. Last week, we covered the events of the murder and the police's search for the killer. This week, we'll look at what happened once police narrowed in on a suspect. On the cold, windy night of September 14, 1934, Elliot Spear was murdered in his cottage on campus. Eerily, the killing seemed to come straight out of the world of fiction. His death was nearly identical to a murder that took place in a detective novel that he had had on his shelf in his office. In the book, the headmaster of a prestigious private boys' school is shot through the window of his study. Elliot was the headmaster of the well-regarded Mount Hermon School for Boys, 
and was shot nine times through the window. The fictional murderer disposed of the murder weapon in a lake near the headmaster's cottage. The gun that killed Elliot was never found. However, police suspected it lay hidden deep within the muck at the bottom of the school's lake. And finally, the murderer in the book was never punished for his crime. But that was one detail the police were determined to keep from repeating in real life. Their search began on the campus where Elliot lived and worked. The Mount Hermon School for Boys had a fiercely loyal alumni community, many of whom didn't like the progressive changes that Elliot Spear had made since taking over the role of headmaster. And police wondered if one of these former students could be to blame for Elliot's death. But in the days following the murder, Tom Elder, the school's dean, came forward with copies of letters that made the police change their line of thinking. The letters, written between Tom Elder and Elliot Spear, contained many words of praise between the two. They seemed to indicate that Elliot Spear intended Tom Elder to be his replacement as headmaster, should anything have happened to him. Yet, the veracity of these letters was highly suspicious. Elder's story about their creation was convoluted and unbelievable. Additionally, the fact that they served no clear purpose while Elliot was alive, and then were revealed immediately after his death, was downright damning. Not only did many at the school suspect that Tom Elder had forged the letters, but police saw them as evidence of a motive. For if Elder had been willing to forge the letters to secure the headmaster's position, one had to wonder if he was also willing to kill for the job. On October 5th, 1934, District Attorney Joseph Bartlett called Dean Elder and asked if they could meet and discuss the situation. Elder agreed. Yet, much to Elder's surprise, D.A. Bartlett had no intention of speaking with him at all. Instead, six police detectives led by Detective John Stokes showed up at his house around 10 p.m. They then questioned Elder for several hours. The detectives wanted to know everything Elder could tell them about the letters, why he had destroyed the originals, where he made the copies, and why both letters were written on the headmaster's stationery. If Elder felt flustered, he didn't show it. He calmly explained that he'd had the original copies destroyed at Elliot Spears' request. According to Tom Elder, Elliot had made some disparaging comments about his predecessor, Henry Cutler, and did not want them to become public. Yet for all his rationalizations, Elder could not explain why he carried around Elliot's stationery in addition to his own. Once he had finished grilling Elder about the letters, Detective Stokes moved on to the Dean's actions on the night of Elliot's murder. Walk me through your movements on the night of the shooting. Well, let's see. I had supper with my wife, as we always do. Then afterwards, she went to the dining table to fold some campaign mailers. I'm running for local office, you see. Local office? You're an ambitious gentleman, aren't you? One could say. I make the most of what I can. If your wife was folding the mailers, what were you doing? I had to take my car to the garage. One of my headlights was out and needed to be replaced. What time was that? I would say 7.40 p.m. 
Afterward, I went up to Holbrook Hall on campus and stayed there until about 9 p.m. or so, until I heard about Elliot's tragic murder when I rushed over to his cottage. How did you hear about the murder? I had called his residence and asked to speak to him. And naturally, he was indisposed. You mean he was dead? I was being delicate, but yes, it was a great shock. If the timeline that the Dean had laid out was correct, then it was unlikely that he could have murdered Elliot Spear, as the headmaster was killed around 8 p.m. or shortly after. The Dean would have been at Morgan's garage at that time. However, Detective Stokes was unconvinced by Elder's account. And tell us, Mr. Elder, have you, at any point, ever owned a 12-gauge gun? Well, sure, many years ago. I believe I did. It was a gift when I was a young man at Cornell. But I haven't had a 12-gauge in many, many years. Not since I came to work at Mount Hermon, 24 years ago. I see. What happened to the gun? I couldn't say. I think it was destroyed in a fire. How unfortunate. Eventually, Elder's questioning came to an end in the early hours of October 6, 1934. The detectives had not been able to get anything incriminating out of the dean. The following day, the board of trustees at the Mount Hermon School asked Tom Elder to take a leave of absence. Ostensibly, and for the public, it was due to his heart condition, which had left the dean in deteriorating health. But the true rationale was the dean's possible role in the murder of Mount Hermon's headmaster. The school wanted to protect the dean's reputation in case the charges proved to be false. It was a considerate move, but Elder was still furious with the proceedings. He wrote to the president of the board, Wilfred Fry, to let him know his feelings. Dear Mr. Fry, it grieves me deeply to know that it was felt necessary to send private detectives to Mount Hermon to investigate these letters which I turned over to the district attorney without any compulsion. The methods used by these detectives were, I think, wholly unfair. I was thoroughly exhausted by the tragedy which affected me deeply, and then to be questioned from between 9 and 10 o'clock in the evening of one day until 4.30 in the morning of the next day by seven men was, I feel, very unjust. Elder may have felt like he was being wrongly accused, but the police didn't share this opinion. On December 3, 1934, D.A. Bartlett requested an inquest to determine if there was sufficient evidence to bring Tom Elder to trial for the murder of Elliot Spear. Which meant that, soon, a jury would decide Tom Elder's fate. Next, we'll learn what happened at the inquest and follow the police's continued efforts to bring Elliot's killer to justice. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. On December 3rd, 1934, 
District Attorney Joseph Bartlett requested an inquest into the possibility that Tom Elder had murdered Elliot Spear, the headmaster of the Mount Hermon School for Boys. The inquest was held at the Franklin County Courthouse in Greenfield. Judge Timothy Hayes presided over the proceedings. The detectives decided to keep the inquest private. This was partly out of respect to the school, which did not want the salacious details of the murder getting out more than was necessary. It was also an effort by the police and detectives on the case to maintain the integrity of witness testimonies. If witnesses were not able to hear each other, they would not be able to change their stories based on something they had learned earlier in the day. First, several faculty members were brought to the stand to confirm that they saw Elliot alive during the day on September 14th. This established that he was indeed murdered later that evening and not before. Next, they brought Elliot Spear's father, Dr. Robert Elliot Spear, to the stand. Dr. Robert Elliot Spear, I'd like to ask your opinion on the letter allegedly sent to Dean Elder by your son. With all due respect, I think the letter is false, sir. Can you elaborate on why you think so? For one, it strikes me as absurd that the Dean would destroy the original copies of the letters if their entire purpose was to provide documentation of a conversation. But beyond that, he simply didn't do a very good job at sounding like my son. What do you mean? Well, I don't know what kind of schooling the Dean had, but my son would never use the slang contained in this letter in written correspondence of any sort. I see. And further, I have my son's diary. I looked through it to find the day Dean Elder claims my son wrote him this letter. He was quite busy on February the 19th. I don't know when he would have found a spare moment to write a lengthy letter to Tom Elder in longhand. Thank you, sir. That will be all. The testimony given by Elliot's father was relatively damning, but it was nothing compared to what came next when Elliot's wife Holly was called to the stand. Prior to the inquest, she had never seen the letters in question. She was now given a chance to read them and respond. Mrs. Spear, now that you have had a chance to read what was allegedly sent to Dean Elder by your husband, what is your impression of the letter? I have to say, sir, I am shocked that anyone took this seriously. This letter does not sound like my husband at all. Why is that, ma'am? I... well, with all due respect, Elliot didn't like Tom Elder. My husband would not have written that the man's capabilities were equal to his own because they simply weren't. Elliot regarded the man as a problem, a dark stain upon Mount Hermon, in fact. I see. And this bit about planning to be away from the school in the coming months doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He took the job as headmaster to be able to spend more time with us, with his family. Anyone who knew him could have told you that. Do you think it's possible your husband had plans that he kept secret from you? I don't, sir. Elliot was completely transparent with me. I would stake my life on it. No further questions, Your Honor. Those closest to the murdered headmaster had testified that the letters did not appear to be genuine. Now, District Attorney Bartlett moved on to another matter mentioned in the letters. 
He called S. Allen Norton, the Mount Hermon accountant, to answer questions regarding the raise promised to the dean in the letter. The raise was significant for two reasons. First, it was larger than any raise given at Mount Hermon, bringing the dean's pay to be equal that of the headmaster. And second, as Norton confirmed at the inquest, the raise never actually materialized. So either Elliot promised it to the dean and then changed his mind, or he never promised it at all because he didn't write the letter. The inquest continued a few days later on December 10th, as the defense worked to establish the timeline of events for the night Elliot was killed. Dean Elder had been seen at his home, then at Morgan's garage, and then later at Holbrook Hall on campus. The question for District Attorney Bartlett to answer was whether or not Dean Elder had also swung by the headmaster's cottage and shot nine bullets through the study window. In an effort to prove that Elder had indeed taken a detour by the Spear family's home, Bartlett called Daniel Bodley and William Deerig to the stand. They were workers at the school who had been standing outside the post office on September 14th. They testified that they had seen a car head towards the headmaster's cottage sometime near 8 p.m. and then saw it leave very quickly about five minutes later. They could not say for certain whether it was the dean's car, but if it was, the rapid departure from the headmaster's cottage certainly fit in with the timeline that Bartlett was establishing for the murder. Next, Bartlett called a student to the stand who had gone to the dean's house on the evening that Elliot Spear was killed. What time did you leave your house on September 14th? I left at 7.30 p.m. I know because I heard the church bells on my walk. What time did you get to the dean's house? I got there at 8 p.m., I believe. What were the elders doing when you got there? Uh, Mrs. Elder was sitting at the dining room table, folding mailers for the dean's campaign. He's running for office? I, I don't know if you know. Mr. Elder was only there for a little bit. He left shortly after I got there, I think around 8.20 p.m. And did you see him again that evening? No. I left his house around 9, I think. Thank you. The student's testimony established only that the dean was not at home for several hours after 8.20 p.m. Per this timeline, it was entirely possible for him to have made a quick detour to the headmaster's study. But D.A. Bartlett had a problem. While the student was confident of the events he was describing, he was less sure about the exact time he had been at Tom Elder's house. And several others who testified had the same issue. Even the time of the murder was a bit fuzzy. Elliot's wife thought it was around 8 p.m., but said it could have been as late as 8.30. So for Elder to be guilty of Elliot's murder, Bartlett would have to prove that Elder had a window of opportunity between 8 p.m. and 8.30, Given the student's testimony that Elder had left his home by 8.20, that would provide Elder 10 minutes to have killed Elliot. The headmaster's cottage was a quick drive from Elder's home, meaning that it was entirely plausible for Elder to have pulled the trigger. The question was whether this possibility would be enough to convince the judge of Tom Elder's potential guilt. Next, 
Bartlett called mechanic Herman Miner to the stand. Would you mind telling us where you work, please? Morgan's Garage, sir. And on September the 14th, Dean Elder brought his car in, correct? Yes, one of his headlights was out. He needed a new one. We fixed it up for him right quick. And what time would that have been? I'm afraid I don't know, sir. But if I had to guess, I would say it was sometime between 8 p.m. and 8.30. Thank you. Herman Miner's testimony established that Dean Elder came to Morgan's garage between 8 p.m. and 8.30. Given that he was not at the garage for long, he would have had time to make the short trip over to the headmaster's study before heading to Holbrook Hall. But Miner's testimony was called into question when his boss, Miles E. Morgan, took the stand. He thought that Dean Elder arrived at the garage at 8.45 p.m., This would still have allowed him time to swing by the headmaster's cottage before bringing his car to the garage, but it made it very difficult for Bartlett to establish a timeline with any credibility. This problem was made even worse when another worker from the garage said he thought Elder had arrived closer to 8 p.m. At best, Bartlett was able to establish that the dean was there sometime between 8 p.m. and 8.45 p.m. But he would need to narrow it down if he were going to build a compelling case. If he couldn't nail down a firm time for Elder's appearance at the garage, Bartlett hoped he could at least pin down the dean's arrival at Holbrook Hall on campus, where he was seen later in the evening. He turned his focus to gathering testimony from witnesses who were at the hall on the night of Elliot's murder and who saw the dean when he arrived. One such person was Lewis Smith, the head of the English department. He remembered seeing the dean at some point in Holbrook Hall on the night of the 14th, but he wasn't sure when. He guessed that it was somewhere between 7.45 and 8.50. A second person, a young math teacher named Francis Bailey, had also seen the dean in Holbrook Hall that night. And, in fact spent a significant portion of the evening with him. Please state your name, sir. Francis Bailey, sir. I teach math at the Mount Hermon School for Boys. Can you describe the events of the evening of September 14th, please? Well, let's see. I was working on my lesson plans in Holbrook Hall. That's the big hall on campus, sir. A trooper came and asked me if I knew where the headmaster was. And I said I didn't know. And what time was that? I'm afraid I really couldn't tell you. I lost track of time while I was working. I see. Please, continue. Well, I told Dean Elder that there was a trooper looking for the headmaster, and the dean said he would give Elliot a call. I'm afraid I couldn't say what time that was either. But after he made the call, he came back extremely agitated. He told me to grab my coat and come with him. Did he say where you were going? No. He said only that we mustn't let anyone know where we were headed. But I soon realized we were going to the headmaster's house. Dean Elder was so excited that he actually tripped on his way through Elliot's yard. It must have been pretty bad. I saw him later with a bandage on his hand. And what time would you say you got there? I'm so sorry. I, in all the excitement, I'm afraid I don't know. It was all so terrible. Elliot was there, lying in a pool of blood. I had no idea he would be dead. It was all, all so terrible. Thank you. That will do for now. 
The math teacher was not able to provide definitive times for the events of the evening. And Bartlett still was no closer to closing in on an official timeline than he was before. Next, he focused his attention on the murder weapon, attempting to prove that the 12-gauge gun used to kill Elliot Spear could have belonged to the dean. He called Daniel Van Valkenburg, the school's blacksmith, to the stand. Daniel, have you ever been hunting with the dean? Yes, sir. He and I went out shooting in the woods about 19 years ago. And what sort of gun did Tom Elder use? It was a 12-gauge, sir. I remember because we were using buckshot, and it wasn't quite right for a 12-gauge. I told him so, but he wanted to try it anyway. His gun also had a nasty kickback, and the trigger had been replaced. If you used two fingers to pull it, it would injure your hand. A very memorable gun. Injure your hand, you say? So do you think it's possible that if the Dean had a wound on his hand the night of September 14th, It could have been from pulling the trigger on that gun. Absolutely, sir. I saw that he had bandages on his hand, and the thought occurred to me that it was from using that nasty gun. Thank you. No further questions. The final witness, and certainly the most useless for Bartlett, was the dean himself. Elder asserted, as he had from the start, that he had gone from his house to the auto repair shop to the school hall, never swinging by the headmaster's cottage. He also swore that he had not owned a 12-gauge gun in the recent past. At this point, there was very little for Bartlett to do. It would be a question of who was more convincing for the judge. After studying the evidence for several weeks, on January 8, 1935, Judge Hayes was finally ready to reveal his decision. Bartlett, the police, and Elliot's family were all stunned by the news. Dean Elder would not be going to trial. There were several points against the Dean. He had a clear motive to kill the headmaster, as it was well documented that he wanted Elliot's job. He had spoken about it on multiple occasions with several people at the school, and the existence of the copied letters only strengthened that motive. The dean also had ample time to commit the murder, as it would have only taken a few minutes to drive from the garage to the headmaster's cottage, a minute more to fire into the study, then mere minutes again to get to Holbrook Hall. He had also owned a 12-gauge gun at one point in history. But no one had seen the gun in 19 years, and there weren't any witnesses who could directly place him at the home of the headmaster, As far as the judge was concerned, there simply wasn't enough evidence to bring the dean to trial. But the police had no doubt that Tom Elder was the man who killed Elliot Spear. They were furious that he had slipped through their fingers. But they might have felt better if they'd known. They'd soon get a second chance to put the dean behind bars. Coming up... The quest for justice continues after the inquest. Now, back to the story. In December of 1934, Tom Elder, the dean at the Mount Hermon School for Boys, was examined at an official inquest for his possible role in the murder of Headmaster Elliot Spear. 
On January 8, 1935, the presiding judge ruled that there was insufficient evidence to bring Tom Elder to trial for the murder, and so the dean walked free. Despite the judge's decision, several members of the community were convinced that the dean had killed the headmaster and gotten away with it, just like in Elliot's detective novel. The school asked Dean Elder to take an indefinite leave of absence. Now, not only were his hopes of becoming headmaster completely thwarted, but he had lost his job, too. The crime slowly faded from public consciousness. Life at Mount Hermon slowly returned to normal, that is, until May 26, 1937. It was a Wednesday night at around 11 p.m. when S. Allen Norton, the former accountant at the Mount Hermon School for Boys, was walking across his front yard. He'd recently returned home from a church meeting. He heard someone call his name. Hey, Norton. And looked up to see Tom Elder. Come here. I want to talk to you. Dean Elder, what are you... Whoa! Why do you have a gun? I want to talk to you. Now do as I say. As soon as Norton saw Elder's weapon, he ran into his home and shut the door. He was terrified and immediately called the police. Elder was arrested the following morning at his home in Alton, New Hampshire. He went willingly, claiming innocence, denying that he had even seen Norton on the 26th. The Greenfield police still believed that Elder was responsible for the murder of Elliot Spear two years prior, and they were determined not to let him slip through their fingers again. Mr. Elder, where were you at 11 p.m. on Wednesday, May 26th? I was attending a meeting for the Holstein Frisian Association. It's an association of cattle breeders. I'm a director of the group. I see. Where was the event? In Keene, New Hampshire. We stayed at the Eagle Hotel. You can check with them if you'd like. We were a good 40 miles away from Greenfield, sir. Is there anyone who can confirm that you spent the night there? My wife. I'm sure she'd be most happy to talk to you. Police did speak to Tom Elder's wife. Unsurprisingly, Mrs. Elder confirmed all the claims that her husband had made. She said that they went to bed in their room at the hotel early, around 7.30 p.m. or 8, and then woke at 7 a.m. for a quick breakfast before driving home. Though her corroboration seemed to clear Elder, the police questioned whether she would speak out against her husband and sought other witnesses. The hotel maid remembered tidying Mrs. Elder's room on the morning of May 27th. She said that it looked like only one person had slept in the bed the night before. Meanwhile, the newspapers were having a heyday with the story of the former dean, a possible murderer having threatened a second Mount Hermon faculty member with a gun. They gained some additional intel on the situation. The New York Times reported that accountant S. Allen Norton had met with state detectives the week before the incident and had given them new and vital information about the murder of Elliot Spear. The information was apparently so sensitive that officials had to meet with Norton at a golf course so as not to elicit any attention. But Elder may also have had an additional reason for threatening S. Allen Norton with a gun. So, Norton, what exactly happened? 
Well, the dean made a request to the Mount Hermon School for Boys and asked for quite a large pension. He said he was destitute. I see. And how did this involve you? Well, I work at the local bank now, you see. And Tom Elder is not destitute. I've seen his account balance. The man is just money hungry. He has $3,000 in savings. I know that's not a lot by some people's standards. But in these times, what with the depression, there are people out there who really are broke. They should be the ones getting that money for a pension. Not a liar like Tom Elder. Hmm. But I still don't understand how the situation involves you. Fair enough. I just couldn't stand the injustice, sir. So I anonymously sent him a copy of his bank report, just to let him know that someone at the bank was watching and knew what he was up to. I'm sure he recognized my handwriting and knew it was me. I didn't try to hide it. I see. It seems like you and the Dean aren't on the best of terms. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, I'm afraid that's so, sir. He and I have long been at each other's ankles, if I speak the truth. Thank you. That'll be all for now. On June 3rd, 1937, Tom Elder was brought before Judge Philip H. Ball to determine if there was enough evidence to refer the case to the grand jury. Unlike the inquest for Elliot's murder, this hearing was open to the public. First, S. Allen Norton was brought to the stand to describe the incident. He recounted how he was in his front yard around 11 p.m. on May 26th when Tom Elder appeared, asking to speak to him and then brandishing a gun. Norton was then cross-examined by the defense counsel, led by Charles Fairhurst. The defense went into detail on the bad blood between the two men, bringing up an incident from long before when the two men worked together at Mount Hermon, sharing an office wall. He hoped to suggest that Norton had fabricated the entire incident in an attempt to get back at Elder. Norton, I believe there was an incident that happened when you and Tom Elder were office neighbors. Is this correct? Well, sure. I suppose you could call it an incident. Would you mind describing it for us? Uh, of course. Well, y you see, Tom Elder had a very young, attractive assistant at the time. A, a Miss Dill. Not sure if you know her. We're familiar. Go on. Of, of course you are, my mistake. Well, you see, I suspected that perhaps things weren't quite right between her and Mr. Elder, if you catch my drift. I feared that there may have been some, um, impropriety. I see. And so, I drilled a hole, just, just a small hole in the wall between our two offices, so that I could see what was happening in Elder's office. You cut a hole in your wall to spy on the dean and his secretary? Well, now when you put it like that, it sounds quite sordid. I, I just wanted to make sure everything was okay, for Miss Dill's sake. Uh-huh. And what did you see when you looked through your little peephole? I, I wish you wouldn't call it a peephole, but I saw the two of them kissing. 
Mr. Elder was a married man and on school property. It wasn't right. So I told Mr. Cutler, the headmaster at the time. And what did he do? Well, he had all of us into his office for a meeting and we prayed together. Did you feel like that resolved the issue? Well, no, sir. I respect the power of prayer, but I felt like Mr. Elder had done something reprehensible and was not fittingly punished for it. And he was very angry at me about the entire incident, for being the whistleblower, and for the whole. Enough that you'd make up an incident of him waving a gun at your home just to get your revenge? Hey now, no! I didn't say anything like that! You're twisting my words! No further questions, Your Honor. Though Tom Elder's defense attorney was easily able to establish ill will between the two men, the evidence was still primarily stacked against the dean. He had been seen by two witnesses at the home of S. Allen Norton on the night of the 26th, both of whom accurately described his physical appearance and car. Meanwhile, Elder's wife was his only alibi at the hotel in Keene. On July 14, 1937, the grand jury indicted Elder on two counts, assault with intent to murder and assault with a deadly weapon, putting Norton in fear of bodily harm. On July 22nd, the trial began. Both sides focused on the feud between the two men. The prosecution claimed that it explained why Elder wanted to attack Norton, while the defense sought to prove that it was the reason why Norton had made the whole thing up. The most compelling evidence came from two witnesses called to the stand in the latter half of the trial. Both were neighbors of Norton's who were able to give accurate descriptions of Elder's physical appearance and that of his car. A farmer's almanac was even brought in as evidence to establish that there was enough moonlight on the night of the 26th to recognize a person in the dark. And finally, the defense brought Elder himself to the stand to testify on his own behalf. He took a new approach in his demeanor that he hadn't exhibited throughout the investigation. Mr. Elder, you have maintained your innocence throughout this entire ordeal. Is there anything you would like to add at this point? Only that I hope Mr. Norton finds peace. Thank you, sir. Mr. Norton is a tortured soul, unable to differentiate between the demons in his addled mind and what's here in real life. I pray for him every night. I do. May God bless his soul. Thank you for the kind sentiments. No further questions, Your Honor. Finally, after several days of testimony, the jury retired to begin their deliberations. Five hours later, they emerged with a verdict. Have you reached a decision? Yes, Your Honor. What is your verdict on the first count of assault with intent to murder? Not guilty. And the second count of assault with a deadly weapon? Not guilty. The jury believed Elder's word over Norton's. As soon as the verdict was announced, Tom Elder kissed his wife, grabbed her hand, and hurried out of the courthouse. It was a complete about-face from his demure testimony just hours before. Most of the spectators were shocked by the outcome of the trial. By now, virtually everyone in the Mount Hermon community believed that Tom Elder was guilty of assaulting S. Allen Norton and of Elliot Spears' murder. 
They had hoped that, at long last, the former dean would be held accountable. But the jury's decision was final. There was nothing they could do but watch in consternation as Tom Elder waltzed out of the courtroom with his wife, still a free man. He had narrowly escaped prison for the second time. Once again, life slowly returned to normal around Mount Herbin. Students and faculty headed back to the routines of campus life, certain now that justice would never be served. The murder of Elliot Spear had found one last way to mimic the detective novel, The Public School Murder. The killer got away with the crime. The murder of Elliot Spear took place nearly a century ago, but still fascinates people to this day. One reason might be the eerie similarity between the crime and the detective novel Elliot had had on his shelf in his study. It seems extremely unlikely that a book describing a nearly identical crime could have simply been a coincidence. Another reason the crime has fascinated people for so long is that it was never solved. The police and residents of Mount Hermon may have had their suspicions, but there was never enough evidence to put anyone behind bars. Whoever killed Elliot Spear did a good job of covering his or her tracks. I have to say, I think Dean Elder had to have committed the murder. There are so many things that he did that seem suspicious. The letters, in particular, seem like a transparent attempt to get the headmaster's position. It seems like he wrote those really quickly when things weren't going his way and didn't think about how they would look. Uh, Yeah, that's definitely a suspicious detail. But even if we assume the dean forged the letters, it doesn't necessarily mean that he murdered the headmaster. I wonder if someone could have read the detective novel in Elliot's study and then used it to try and frame someone else for the murder like the Dean, who borrowed books from Elliot all the time. Ooh, that's interesting. There were a lot of teachers and alumni who didn't like the liberal changes Elliot was making at the school. Maybe one of them knew that the Dean wanted the headmaster's job and saw an opportunity. Well, that certainly seems possible. Any number of people could have pulled the trigger. And sadly, we'll likely never know the true identity of Elliot Spears' killer. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unsolved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders into the search bar. And for more information on Elliot Spears' murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder at Mount Hermon by Craig Wally extremely helpful to our research. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time.
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Lena Kuyumjan, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Sky King, Harris Markson, and Dan Velasquez. 